Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. Late one evening, pre-show, I got to sit down with actor Keelan Dunn and talk about Teresa Devi's Katie Roach, currently running on the Abbey stage. For the first 20 minutes of this podcast, we talk purely about Katie Roach, with all her complex simplicity, passion and perpetual hope worn for all to witness. Keelan talks about the artistry of Katie, the proximity of character and the vision of director Caroline Byrne. She talks of hitting silences, badly timed truths and the language of the land. After that, there is talk of growing up fast, the funny side of boredom, grief and free falling all the way to London. Enjoy this podcast. Right. Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series, Keelan Dunn. Thank you. Right. Let's just jump right to it then. Katie Roach. How do you unlock a character like Katie Roach? Unlock her and find your way to her. Oh. It's tricky. It's really tricky, actually. Um, Because I read the script the first time I read it. I was fascinated by it and by her. But I was kind of thrown by the language and had to go back to it again and and dig past that. She is so complex, but at the same time, it is impossible to play that complexity. It just exists. So you have to play the simplicity of her and the honesty of her and how straightforward and direct and in your face she is. It seems to me that she wears an awful lot of her interior life on the outside she wears her heart on the outside Mm. so then how do you find that psychological route then it is obviously a simplistic because usually you have to dig Mm. very deep for that but she's revealing everything I think if you if you think too much about it you you give her too much of your own cynicism if you if you make her too self-aware and too aware of her consequences and you can overthink and, and and give her too much insight um so you have to do the thinking but then forget the thinking and just play the line because I think that's the thing about Katie what makes her so different from everybody else is she says it well everybody else may be thinking it but not saying it so you kind of as well as as having that work done on your own you've got to you've got to kind of watch and listen to everybody else and bounce off them and play off their fears and their restrictions and their own self-repression. It's hard not to judge her choices from where I'm standing in 2017. Mm. Um, yeah, it's um, her motivation. I mean, is it to, it's to save her soul, to adapt or die, which I think is kind of the same thing in this. It is, it is. It's, it's, I don't think that is her knowing I think that's that is just something that she is that's that's inbuilt in her she she's a survivor she bounces back because she has this joie de vivre she has this this light in her but she's constantly trying to suppress it herself well I think she's she she's only trying to suppress it when somebody appears in the room that says no I mean the first instance of it is when Stanislaw says to her your, your mother, it's a shame about you, your mother was a wonderful woman. And that stops her. For a second it stops her, yeah, it is a shame. And then she's straight back in. But yeah, she, but, but she was a great woman, so tell me more about her. She's resilient. Um, and 
it takes quite a lot to to break her down. It's only at the very end, I think, where where the real cracks start to show. And it's it's it can be difficult as well to to, to put. I don't think she. I don't think it's it's purely naivety that keeps her so resilient. I think it's something something stronger in her. And it's so hard to find, and it's so it well, it is so tricky to kind of to know what that is in twenty seventeen what that would be in 2017 and then try and think of what it would be in 1936 because what was required to be considered outside of the lines or other was so little. Um, you really didn't have to do that much. So it was a, that, that was a big, a big thing in my head was to constantly remind myself that I'm not playing somebody in 2017. So what is considered wild or giddy in 2017 is not the same as what's considered wild or giddy in 1936. So I didn't have to do quite as much. But yeah, she is, for all of, of what I've got, from where I've got to now, from where I began, it has been quite a tricky journey. And and it is about going down roads and and hitting dead ends and going okay well it wasn't that we've in that one we've made her too aware of the consequences of things go back. So what is her truth then? Because I've seen you in tech and I was kind of it seemed that at every turn you were taking you were uh, you were you were stopping but you were you you kept kind of asking like uh, I suppose what her motivation was because uh, her her turns are so quick in mm. a way so. What is her truth, or what what have you found her truth to be so far? It's about being great, and it's about being seen as an equal, and being seen as being seen as a person, a, a, a legitimate, full, three dimensional human being. Um, and the options open at the time were not wonderful, so it was the convent. The convent, and not and, and the way Katie thinks is, it's not just about going to the convent. I could do that. But I'm gonna be a saint, so I'm not just gonna. I'm gonna always go one above. It's like when she's describing the plans to Stanislaus. She sees them. He's drawn them, but she sees them, and she sees all of it and can can paint it in front of people. So there's a. She's That's an a artist. Really she's an artist. Scene, yeah. Actually. I think that I'd love to pour over that more because that's the one that she just wants something from him. And that's the moment I think that he seems extremely weak, that he just can't. Mm. Um, it's not a challenge, but it's uh, he certainly doesn't hear her or see her. I think he's afraid of her. I think he's afraid of her. And I think he's afraid of her expectations of him. You know, um, she sees him as amazing. That you can do this, you can you can draw houses. That's amazing. You can build things on paper, and what you've done is amazing. And I don't think he feels the same way about his work, or doesn't see the potential. She has that sight, even in when they're both in the very first act, when they're both looking out the window, and he can only see the pansies and the flowers, and she can see the fields and the river and the wind and. She has such a, a depth and width of, of, of sight. And I think that terrifies him and kind of emasculates him that this uneducated 19-year-old who can't talk properly 
can do these amazing things in her mind that he can't or won't allow himself to. Talk to me then about love and lust in Katie Roach. Mm. They're tricky ones. Because I think, well, love, I think she does fall in love with Stanislaus. I think she does, and I don't, but I think at the beginning she doesn't know what love is, and I think by the end she understands it. She has a greater understanding of what it means because of maybe, because of what's happened with Michael, I think, in that she does love Michael as well, but it's not, it's not the same. Lust. You think she loves him, Michael? I think she loves Michael, but I'm not sure it's the same kind of love. I think Michael is, Michael is the obvious option. I think there's a great friendship there and a great, um, a great love in that regard. But I think, I think Stanislaus kind of, everything that he represents is what she loves and that potential she loves, and that greatness that she, that she so desires. He is all of that, and he shows her too late. That's the other thing about this play, is that everybody comes in a little too late with their truths for her. But do you think he's enough for her? I mean, she loves the idea of him, but mm. do you think he'll ever no, fulfill I, that? No, I don't think anybody will ever fulfill that for her. Will she fulfill that for herself? That is the hope, and that's where the bravery comes from. And that's what keeps her from doing a header, <laughs> like going off and grabbing the gun, is that that perpetual hope. I mean, Michael has, has arrived too late and said, I, I should have, could have, would have. And she's like, well, no, where's your passion? And nobody has that. And, and, Stan, and Stan shows little bits of it, which keep her engaged when he screams at her, when he turns on her. She wants a scrap with somebody. She wants somebody who's going to... Be a match for her. Be, exactly. And Stan has that, whereas Michael's kind of... He shows a glimpse of it and then retreats and says, well, you're married. And she, she's like, well, that's... In that moment, if Michael had of kissed her and even though that was... That's uh, there to thwart Stanislaus, but, I mean, it doesn't change anything, but... Could it have changed something? I think it could have. I think it definitely could have. How, uh, by how much, I don't know, but I think it would have made her make her stop and go, oh, there you are. Okay, let's remember this. And I think maybe, see, the other thing is also, there's the dream and then there's the reality is what Katie would have loved to maybe run away with Michael and leave the husband but the reality is never going to allow that so she's she lives in the in she's kind of pulled down by the real world but the dreamer's head but she's probably always going to live in her head yeah well she does that's that's the only place she she can be fully herself is in her head what she sees what she what she the pictures she paints and the stories she tells in her head the images of her parents and and people kind of give her little bits 
here and there that she the images grow and grow and grow and grow and for such a it's it's it, it, for somebody who's who's it's such an amazing play in that the, nobody has any big dreamy monologues nobody has any huge pieces of text but all of that stuff is alive in them whether it's pushed down or whether it's crammed into their head or or it's in, it's baked into scones it's well talk to me about that relationship with Amelia they are they are a fascinating pair and it's a, it's a, I think one of the greatest tragedies of the play is Katie doesn't see Amelia until the very end and Amelia is the the strongest person in the play um, and she comes out on top really at the end she gets to keep her house to herself she, yeah but what about loneliness well she's she's always been lonely I think Amelia I think everybody in this play is lonely um, whether they've made themselves lonely as a way to survive or, or they have been made lonely but I think that's the thing about Amelia is she's so resilient this is a woman who fought off everybody even you know her brother coming back to tell her that she should get married still she holds that to the end I'm not going to do that's not what I want and even Katie fell for that one you know Amelia the, is the woman that Katie could have been had Stan not arrived She's one of the options, I think. But Amelia was also the... To, su to survive in that world, to, to, shut, to push so much down and still function is extraordinary. And to not break, because she doesn't break ever. It's a huge sacrifice to make, and it's a huge sacrifice to make for the sake of other people, because she does so much for Katie's sake. She's the, the... A lot of people say surrogate mother, but I think of her more as a sister. And a lot of people yeah, have told me, you know, um, Amelia's based on Nell, who was Teresa's sister, who was her interpreter and, and kind of best friend. Um, it's always been interesting to imagine what it's like before the play starts and how they are together in the house. We had to push away a lot of ideas of it being very upstairs, downstairs, that Katie was this maid who was always there and thing. And th I think it's so much more... I think it's so much softer than that. I think there's a kind of a symbiosis happening there where, at, and you see it only, well, you see it more at the end when they're ripped apart of how do these two function without each other. They've like been in a marriage for 40 years <laughs> where they just know that you're going to be there. And a lot of that, Caroline's done some great work with the, with the images of just always knowing that the other one is in the room, whether you turn around, when you turn around and knowing that they're there that you can just speak and they'll hear what you need to say. Will you talk a little bit about working with Caroline in the rehearsal room and how she works that rehearsal room? It's a very physical process. Um, we didn't have our scripts in our hands ever during the whole thing. We sat down and read it once for the building. Um, and other than that, it was, it was very much working as bodies in space and how they... How they influence how they influence each other. How how it feels when you're in a room on your own and then to have somebody else come into a room. What does that do to you? What does it do to the room? What does it do to that person? Which in this play, at the start, I mean, with stuff like that, you're always at the start going, yeah, that's great. I don't know what the hell that's about. What that? Okay, I'll come in now. 
And then you get two weeks into production and you go, oh, yeah, I get that now. Because this play is so, is so kind of, there's so many instances of somebody being in a room and somebody else coming in and the entire game changes. So it is, it's very physical, but I mean, that is, that is the play and that, and that, uh, it, it was helpful for me in that I didn't get bogged down in my head of going, what is she thinking now? What is she thinking now? What is she thinking now? It was more of a just do it and don't think about it, which was very helpful for this character. Me and Caroline had done a couple of sessions on the script in London before we started to just go through and just mark out this is where this game changes. This is where the... Just mar mainly hitting silences and kind of going, right, what have we got up to that silence? Um, and then what happens in that silence? What shifts? Because, as you said, Katie is so changeable that if you go at it at any kind of speed, you lose those shifts and you lose the what happens in them and why they happen. And they become kind of nonsensical and just these kind of erratic... She becomes bratty, I think, if you don't give those changes the, the attention that's required. We had the soil in, the wonderful soil, for four weeks of soil. It's in your lungs. It's everywhere, Lisa. It is absolutely <laughs> everywhere. I am more soil now than woman. Um, but that was it was actually great for me because I got to... It's so important to Katie. It's so part of the language of her is is sitting in that and getting your feet in it and getting your hands in it. and Talk to me about the physicality of the role because it does feel that so much movement there. Has this changed you as an actor? No, it has it, It's funny. Actually. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. <laughs> it hasn't at all. No. <laughs> There's more to that. That's not my answer. There's more to it. <laughs> It's funny, I did a play last year in Hampstead called Wild, which is a very physical part. It was a crazy show in which we built a set within the set that spun 90 degrees and we had to take everything. It was nuts. But it was the first time I did really physical work. And it was, it was that kind of thing that I'd always kind of been begging to do and somebody let me do because it's something I enjoy so much. But you kind of find yourself always in a corset or sat at a table or it rarely comes about that you get to be that free. Um, and Caroline had said to me several times with a rather concerned look on her face that this was going to be <coughs> a very physical role. And I said, I'm fine with that. I'm absolutely fine with that. And she, again, furrowed brow, it's very physical. <laughs> and I was like, no, I know it's going to be very physical. I will be fine. I can move. I can move. Don't worry about that. I'm well able for it. So it's just, just, just been fun. It's been really fun trying to find, trying to find a character physically and not going straight to the psychology of it. And, and, and Eddie Kay, our, our, uh, our movement director, was brilliant in, in, in giving me stuff to do and allowing me space to find what that was for me um, so that it wasn't a dance piece. It was... What, how Katie moves in the space. Um, and that's why having the soil, I think, was so great for me because there'd just be days where I just wanted to just sit in it and just feel it. 
because that's, to me, where she, that's her life source, that's where she comes from. But uh, no, I love doing, I love doing physical stuff. I don't think I do enough of it. That you, if you want to do more physical stuff or if you want to do more comedy stuff, mm. who controls that? How do you control that? It's tough. It's tough because you kind of, you can, I think I've got to the point now where I can more comfortably say, right, I don't want to do that. I want to wait for something else. Or can I ask, can we get more of this? A lot of it is up to a lot of other people in waiting for stuff or somebody seeing you in something and going, oh, she can do that. Um, I am the girl that cries. <laughs> I give good cry and people like to watch me cry for some weird twisted reason. So I do get a lot of emotionally wrought characters and, you know, that's exhausting. To do that for 10 years, to play somebody who is is troubled or beaten or 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 on the edge or or just pushed over the edge is absolutely exhausting and it's something that weirdly enough I grew up watching comedy that's that was my thing I was the person who did the impressions of people in the house you know I was the funny one so I it, it was I think very strange then to to come in to do really serious, dark work. Okay, we might get back to the dark material in a bit, but then going back to your background, and if you're the funny kid in the house, what kind of household was it growing up? It was a weird household. It was a rocky household. We were all, it was, it was very strange actually growing up in North Dublin in a household that was atheist. Um, and quite strictly atheist. Um, there was no communions, there was no confirmations. We went to Church of Ireland, multi-denominational schools. <laughs> so we were the weird kids. We didn't go to Mass on Sundays. So we'd wait outside, or I'd wait outside when my mates go in, and they'd leave after communion, and then we'd all go play football in the park. But people reacted weirdly to you. So are you a Catholic? No. So you're a Protestant then? No. Are you Jewish? No. Well, what are you? And what are you is a very weird question to ask a seven-year-old. What did a seven-year-old say? Seven-year-old went, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. What? So that's, that's a weird thing, but we always had... We were very... Books were the thing in our house. Huge. People ate books in my house. They didn't just read them, they ate them. Are you the oldest or the middle? I'm or the, the baby by 11 months. Not much. Not a lot. Um, and I was actually the least academic of everybody. I was the, fo I was the sporty, sporty one, the footballer. The, if there was a, 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 a game to be played, a sport to be, to be tried, I tried it. If only for six months and I got bored of it. And I was like, I can do that. Give me something else to do. So the books in the house are books that your older brother and your older sister were reading, so... Reading mum, dad, old brother, older sister, and I kind of... It was hard to avoid it, kind of got sucked into it. Um, Are you going to theatre? Are you being brought to theatre? We were. We didn't go to theatre, actually, but I did... I remember my mum took me and my sister to the ballet a couple of times, which we were... I, I will never forget going to see uh, the Russian State Ballet and being so disappointed by it because I thought it was going to be perfection. 
And it was, in my eyes, I don't even know how old I was, I might have been 12 or 13, I was like, that is so sloppy, ma'am. That was so sloppy. The timing was so sloppy. And I was like, now I look back and go, what kind of child were you rearing? Oh, is that because it was sloppy or no, I done at 12 years old? No, was... I generally felt it was really sloppy and I think I may have gone on about the fall of communism may have ruined the state-sponsored arts. Um, <laughs> oh, you're that kind of kid then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was always art around. There was always, there was in various forms, whether it was my, my mother playing Maria Callas in the kitchen or, or going to the ballet or watching something on the television. There was an awareness of all those things. There was art. There was a lot of art in the house. So what leads you to, well, leads you to theatre, but to act? Because what I, I read is that you get into transition year and you're the shy kid who surprise, surprises their family mm. by being wanting to play Nancy but getting to play Dodger. So talk a little bit about that. Like, did you keep it from your family? I did. I didn't. I mean, there was always little things that we did when we were like kids of putting on shows for the neighbours and that kind of thing. And but I don't recall ever thinking I want to be an actor up until I did that musical. I think I'd wanted to be absolutely everything else under the sun: a mechanic, a nun, a zoologist, a, you name it. And uh, I don't know what it was. I just. I. It was a. It. It just was something that came very naturally and was fun, so much fun. I was surprised at how fun it was. And it kind of was like the mess and I'd done at home. Like, it was what I'd been watching Frangent Saunders and Victoria Wood and Judy Walters do. It was like, I can do that. So I can do that. It came easy to you. Yeah, it did. Surprisingly easy. And did other stuff, was other stuff hard? Like, were you academic? I was, but I was lazy. I got bored. I have a very low threshold for boredom. I get bored very easily, and that was a big problem. With like with sports, it was always she played tennis for six weeks, and we've paid membership to the bloody tennis club for a year, and she's bored with tennis because she can now play tennis as far as she's concerned. What else do we do? Swimming. She she can swim now. She's bored. <laughs> um, so you stayed with acting, or I stayed. I, st- I well, I didn't immediately stay with it. I went to uni and and did two years of a degree and got bored and then <laughs> well I got bored and very disillusioned and kind of something about the acting thing came back up and I was like I can I have to give that a go that's the one thing I have to I have to go back and see what that is which was met with tuts and quite yeah quite a lot of disapproval from everybody because it was going from doing a law degree to going into the complete unknown kind of living in dreamland as far as everybody was concerned. Because there was no one else in your family, extended family, that had pursued this route. No, and I'd, I really hadn't had done it myself as far as everybody was concerned. I'd done one thing in school. They were kind of like, that does not make you an actor. I'm like, well, I know, but let me try. I really believe I can do this. Let me try. So you sign up for the... You, you audition for the Gaty School full-time, mm. get into the Gaty School part-time. Yeah. So between those two, because you, from one you go to the other, which was more beneficial? The part-time or the full-time? Yeah, because the part-time is an, an entirely different beast. Mm. It, it really is. Um, the part-time was about confidence building for me, about being able to stand up in front of a room full of people and do, and do a piece and perform. 
full time was very much the kind of nuts and bolts of of performance. I'd been lucky in that my experience as a singer had helped with my voice work. But stagecraft was really the big thing I took away from it. You know, knowing how to be on stage, spatial awareness, that kind of thing, working with other people. I think I got some bad habits, though, as well, from drama school. I think everybody gets bad habits from drama school. When you're with the same, pe- the same 20 people for two years. What bad habits did you pick up? Corpsing. <laughs> Corpsing was a very bad habit. Um, and ha- just, just like little things, like my hands. I was never, never had a problem with my hands before, but after drama school, I suddenly had a problem with what to do with my hands, which was really weird. And now I get, I'm lucky in this play that I can do whatever the hell I want with my hands. But I'm a very, I'm always forever in plays going, what am I doing? And stopping and looking at myself going, what am I doing? Why, nobody does that with their hands in real life. They're just hands, Keelan. You've had them for 30 odd years. But uh, yeah, drama school was a real experience for me as well, though, because I lost my mother the day before. I hate that euphemism, I lost my mother like I left her in the supermarket. She passed away the day before I went back for my last term at drama school. What age are you at this point? I was 22. Yeah, I was 22. And that kind of then spun everything out. So every, I kind of went into free fall then, really. Got through the end of the year, got an agent, started working straight away. So there was no processing of it. Did you just uh, ignore it? Did you...? Um, I went a bit mental and drank a hell of a lot for quite some time. And, yeah, did ignore it. Kind of didn't really fully give myself the time to go, this has happened. I had enough work that I could just bury myself in that and kind of pretend that it was some sort of therapeutic experience, which it wasn't. Um, what, throwing yourself into roles? Throwing myself into roles and, 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 and keeping busy. Was there any healing within that process? You're saying that you haven't processed this grief, but mm. as an actor... You probably do go to depths um, with some characters. Was there any healing during that time? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I was... If there was, I wasn't... um, I wasn't aware of it because I didn't want to be. It was only when I hit, like, 27 and I stopped drinking and I stepped back from everything and I turned around to face it and I kind of then started to go... Oh, and did it hit you then? It didn't hit me then. It it slowly. It wasn't like a wall. It was just it was bits of it. It was like a delayed. Uh, what seven stages of grief that I'd gone through the first two, denied the others, and the others started to slowly. But I was in so much so better able to deal with them at that stage and I'd, I'd gone to England to do a show there and that was actually quite it was actually quite nice because I was away from here, I mean somebody, I can't remember who it was said you cannot heal in the place you've been hurt 
And I found that, that getting away from Ireland and everything that Ireland was and all the the stuff around this country that kind of caused so much pain to go away from it and look at it from the outside and go, ah, okay, perspective. So did you move fully after that point? Did you move after you got your agent? And you, like, were you here for a while after that or were you, did you...? I was. I was here for five years. I worked here and then I got a job in the UK and I went over and did that, the Vale with Conor McPherson. And then I came back to do Love, Hate. Oh, hang on a minute. I didn't go immediately back. I did Love, Hate and then I did Lear. And then I did The Night Alive at the Donmar. And I then came back to do something else here. So I was back and forth. So you hadn't based yourself there. You were no, still here. I was right. still here, but had opened... Because I'd, ne I'd never even been to London. So it was kind of my first adult step outside thing, greatly delayed by my by putting pause on my life that I'd done for five years and, and ignoring things and not coping with things and not dealing with things. You kind of... You do, for all intents and purposes, stop yourself, prevent yourself from, from acting or, or for fully living. When you're grieving. When yeah, you're... when you're grieving or when you're ignoring grief. I think when you're grieving and you're accepting it and, you're, and you're, you're looking at and you're going through the process and you're allowing yourself to go through the process, that's, that's living and that's part of living. When you shut down and you ignore it, you kind of have to, everywhere, you, you've nowhere to go because everywhere you turn, there it is. So you're just kind of spinning in circles on the spot. But yeah, that, that was great for me personally, but also it kind of, to get out of Ireland and, and see a different kind of work on a different kind of stage to a different standard. But then Love Hate came along and, and I came back to do that. And yeah, Conor McPherson then called again. Thank God for him. And I got to go back again and started to build up a base there. Got you're an, an actor, agent. You're an actor in London, but are you, you're an Irish actor in London. Yeah. Always Irish. Yeah. It's hard to shake. It's very, very hard to shake. You can, eventually, I've been told, <laughs> and I've seen from others, but it takes time. It takes time to shake the, the Irishness away. I've done, I've done one play where I wasn't required to be Irish so far. Did it require you to cry? No, that was the wild. It didn't. I had. To, I could be funny, and I didn't have to be Irish. It was like, God bless you, James McDonald, <laughs> for putting me in this. This is wonderful. I don't have to be. In fact, you don't want me to be Irish. Specifically, don't want me to be Irish, and and I get to be funny. But yeah, it can be infuriating that you're you're kind of waiting for the Irish play to come around every year. Um. But then actually, no. Hang on. Correction. Two plays I've done where I wasn't required to be Irish. When we did Fathers and Sons in the Donmar, myself and Siobhan McSweeney, we were English in that. Which was weird because we were in England doing a Brian Friel play, playing English people. <laughs> yeah. wanted to ask you quickly, because I'm conscious of time, Irish in London, mm, the London years. All right, um, if there was a character that you could play, you haven't gotten the chance to play. Who would it be from a novel play, obviously? Do you know what? That's really funny. Up until about two weeks ago, no, longer than two weeks ago, up until about 
the beginning of rehearsals of this play, I would have said Hedda Gabler. Now, I feel like I've gone above and beyond Hedda Gabler with Katie Roach. I still would like to play Hedda, but I'd like to, I, I, I think I would be so choosy about who I was doing Hedda with because that's one of my favourite plays of all time and I think it's so often badly done misdirected and misunderstood I think she's a hugely misunderstood character um, Do you understand Hedda? Do you understand Katie? Yeah I do I understand Hedda as well I've always under understood Hedda I kind of I think because of the first time I read that play, I was around the age she was, 29 going on 30. And I got what that, that impatience and that boredom and that infuriation with everybody around. Why isn't it, why is nobody, why is everybody so fucking boring? Why is, is I remember saying to somebody, I think it was Caroline actually, yeah it was, during one day and we were doing a note session, I said, I've had one of those weeks where everybody else is so fucking stupid and I'm the smartest person on the earth. But <laughs> we all have those days. I think Hedda has one of those weeks <laughs> in that play. It's like, why is nobody awake? Why am I the only person awake? Where so often that's, that's read and, and, and portrayed as a, as a, as a brattiness, as a, as a snobbishness, this, this woman who's relatively well off, who who kind of toys with people. But it's it's done out of a out of a need to feel alive when you've been locked in a house and your life any or any potential for life has been removed to remind yourself that your life's like permanently slapping yourself in the face to feel something. When do you know when you've cracked a character, when are you satisfied? that you've caught that character? I don't know if I am ever truly satisfied with something. You're always finding it. Always. I mean... If I... It would, I mean, I'd go absolutely bananas if I did it, but to do a play for six months and I'd still probably at the end of it be like, mm, there's something I'm missing. Something I'm missing. You find, you, there's times when you, you hit notes in stuff and something clicks and you're like, that was that. And things will un, unfold from that. When you're making, when you're creating entire human beings that have such depth, to do it in four weeks is impossible. So you keep going throughout performance. You keep digging down and down. And that's one thing I love about theatre is that, yes, we are doing exactly the same thing over and over again for however many nights. But there's something in when you, do, when you put a glass down on the table the first time to when you put a glass down on the table for the 15th time. There's something has changed. There's a depth to you putting that down and the audience feel it. So every night you inch closer to fully getting what that person is. Two big questions to finish off. Why do you act? Oh, why do I act? 
act because I can't really do anything else as well as I can do this. And I act because I've seen the power of storytelling on people. And I know how powerful it is. And it's a huge responsibility, but it works. There's two kind of sides to it. Yes, it's immensely fun, but also it is, it's such a great tool. Um, it's so important as well to, in this country especially, art. Where would we be in this country without our art? We'd be lost. We need it. We don't express ourselves properly. We don't talk, we don't communicate. But when you look at the wealth of art that this country has created and how deep it goes, we, we, we say the unsaid through our art, we do the un, undone through our art. And, and acting and performing and telling stories is, is an amazing way to hold the mirror up to people, to help people to entertain. Sometimes it is merely entertainment and that, that maybe that's all it needs to be in that moment. But when you've met people who have come out of crack habits, been in and out of prison, who would not be alive today were it not for acting and drama, you really get a sense of just how amazing it is to be a part of it and how strong and powerful it is. Sometimes it's almost better not to be aware of how powerful it is and just do it and just let it happen. But at the same time, if you're aware of how powerful it is, it, it, it allows you to push for, for better in, your, in the situations that you're in. Why do that? Don't, that's, no, let's not settle for good enough. Let's do great. And even if it's only for three people in row F who go, wow, I never would have thought about that. And they go away and everybody else is like, eh, I didn't like it, what a load of crap. Grand. Absolutely fine by me, but if it's for one, if it's for one person. I remember when I did In View, as a film I did recently, we did a screening at the IFI, and I was standing up to do a Q&A at the end, and an elderly German lady walked past me and looked at me and put her hand on my face and said thank you, and that she couldn't stick around for the Q&A because it had been too much and left. And I thought, that's why I do what I do. Just that. Because something had happened there with her, whatever it was. That's an amazing thing to be able to, that's a gift to be able to give to people, whether it unlocks something in that they can talk about something they've never, never spoken about before, or it gives them an idea to do something, or they just need to go and have a cry. That's, that's why, because I can do that. My last question was going to be, do you think what you do is important? So you've kind of answered that. So I'm going to tweak it in that, has there been a performance that has changed you in row F? Oh, there's been a few. There's been a few. The last one I was at was Our Ladies of Perpetual Sucker in the Dorfman in London. And I will never forget that show as long as I live. Because I remember sitting down and thinking, 
this is I because I, I had no expectations I had no idea what it was about and I sat down and I just these young ones walked out on stage and were just I was like oh oh this is the show I wanted to make this is the show I've always wanted to make and I know that girl 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 and I'm that girl and yeah I know these people this is oh, yeah, oh, it's so painful and it's so horrible, but it's so wonderful at the same time. And kind of, it brought me back to being 16 and just being wild and just not giving a crap and just being like, and also having your heart broken and falling in love for the first time and and how complicated and messy it is. And that was the last one and that was amazing. The one, I think the one before that was at the... Bristol Ulvik did uh, Jane Eyre. That was tour. It's it's on touring again at the moment. Um, but I saw that in the Littleton, and and that was, I was doing a different show at the time, and I was sat beside my director watching it, and that was some of the most amazing ensemble work I'd ever seen in my entire life. They just had this wooden set of ladders and platforms, and they did everything themselves, and it was all stuff made out of clothes, and they take one piece of clothing and they turn it into something else and there was one guy who played a dog and he just had a whip a, like a little whip that he would bang on the ground to be his tail and I was like watching it going oh, that's I love that theatre that's why I started we used to do Shakespeare in the Park or we used to do these little productions in Smock Alley where we had 20 quid to spend on a show and he'd be like how can we make that into that and it reminded me of that and, and that and that joy and it reminded me always of that feeling and that excitement and that the minute you lose that feeling and that excitement in this job, you got to stop and kind of go, well, why am I not Why am I not feeling that thing? Is it because of me or is it because of somebody else? If it's somebody else, then I can deal with it. But if I'm not feeling it because of myself, maybe it's time to check whether this is what I still want to do. Are you still feeling it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I hadn't worked, I haven't done any stage since November. So to come back and do this was tough, but this has been one of those very special shows. Everybody keeps telling me how beautiful it is, and usually in any kind of play where, where people go, it's beautiful, you can sit out at some stage, like during tech or something, and, and watch and go, oh yeah, it does look amazing. <laughs> but because I'm so in it, and I, I kind of, but I can feel it, I can feel it now, how beautiful it is. You know, I don't know how she does it, Caroline, to see that, to have that sight. It's a gift, it really is. To be able to see that and keep the human in it. Because it's not easy done. You can, you can end up sacrificing the picture for the people or the other way around. And it's a hard balance to strike, but she's got it. So, fair play to her. Keelan Dunn, going to have to let you go. Thank you. No bother. 